I'd like to welcome you this evening to the London School of Economics. This is uh, the second in this term Sustainability in Practice lecture series. Um, and I'm just going to, for those of you who are tweeting during the, the lecture, the hashtag is LSE Leadership. Um, so this evening I'm really delighted to welcome with us uh, Tim McCartney, Mac. And by way of background, I'm just going to let you know that Mac is the founder of Embercombe and tell you just a little bit, if I may, Mac, the story of how Embercombe was started. So Mac was a business uh, coach and uh, one of his corporate clients that he'd been working with for the past five years was extremely pleased because he'd managed to sell his business to Warren Buffett. Um, and as they were finishing the business relationship, the client asked, you know, you've made my dream come true, what is your dream? And Mac told what his dream was, which was to set up a community uh, to empower and train people to lead sustainable lifestyles. And um, the corporate client gave him a cheque to do that instantly as a thank you. And then uh, in discussions, they agreed to set that up as a social enterprise, and that's when the cheque doubled. And so Embercombe is both a place and an organisation, and its mission is to touch hearts, stimulate minds, and inspire committed action for a truly sustainable world. And I have to say, I'm lucky enough to have spent some time at Embercombe, and I really recommend that you all have a look at the website um, and perhaps consider having a visit. So I'm sure that by the end of the, this evening, uh, Mac will have also touched and inspired us uh, with his vision. And without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Mac. Thank you. At the uh, risk of blowing my credibility straight away, um, I should tell you that when I began my first engagement with the leaders of corporations was when I was the gardener at a management training centre. I was the guy who was running the kitchen garden, growing vegetables for the bistro. And uh, Sainsbury's and Debenhams, all these people were pouring through their leaders and I used to try and, uh, as I was working, I would try and hoe or rake uh, close to them so I could eavesdrop their conversations. So I was fascinated to find out what these kind of people spoke about. And um, one time I got so interested, we had Sainsbury's uh, at this place, their deputy store managers. And I asked the boss of this place if I could accompany them on one of their leadership exercises and he said yes you can Mac on one condition and that is that you don't speak because you're a gardener you're the gardener and everybody knows you're the gardener and it's not appropriate that the gardener is dishing out ad leadership advice to Sainsbury's deputy store managers so I don't know how the hand of fate you know how this sort of uh, affects so many things but a chance happening which was these leadership tasks that took place in the mountains, particularly in those days, they were very, very, very intense, full on. And these deputy store managers from Sainsbury's at one point got so overexcited and aggravated about this task that they squared off and two of them bunched their fists and they were about to lay into each other. 
And I remember looking at this situation thinking, my goodness, I never really understood how intense this training is, what they put these people through in the, in the name of leadership development. And as I was watching it, I thought, I'm sure this isn't scripted. And in the end, noticing that the facilitator had sometimes since become irrelevant, I decided to break my promise, stepped forward, managed to stop this um, fight that was breaking out, got them to sit down, assured everybody that they would have their view listened to. And that, wasn't it interesting that depending on where we happen to stand at any one time, that's how we see the world. And yet if I was to show you my book there and hold it up with the cover to you, I'd ask you what color it is, you'd say black, and I'd say no it isn't, it's white, because I'm looking at the other side. So they calmed down a little bit, and we had our tea and coffee, and we worked it all out, and they started to laugh, and then we moved on. So when I got back to the management training center, they said, would you like to do more of that work? And I ended up as the head of consultancy three years later, and then started my business in the UK, and then later in Poland, and later in Russia. But at heart, I've never changed really from the, from the person that was leaning on the hoe and brushing leaves in that garden because that is everything that I love. I love wild places. I love, you know, nature is not something, a scenery for me, it is a consuming passion. And I love it in every form that I perceive it, human in, in every way. So at the same time that this was happening, I was... I was saying I need to learn deeply about the things that I love and incidentally I would offer that as a question for any would-be leader to ask themselves about of the type that we want and really need in our society now. What is it that I truly love? And that took me on a journey of seeking mentors and teachers who could introduce me, take me deeper to the things that I truly love and that led me to visiting and trying to make contact with various Native American people, at that, uh, teachers at that time. And after having met the usual, which you do on any search like that, you meet, you meet thieves, power-obsessed, sex-obsessed, money-obsessed, charlatans of one kind or another who will teach you anything, to try and find somebody that has something real to teach you is more difficult. But I did eventually find those people. And I began what turned out to be a 20-year uh, mentorship, apprenticeship with those people, which ran exactly parallel my business career. So we had this unusual situation of at one point, this man that you're looking at now, rather uh, 30 years younger, uh, stripped to the waist, drums rolling, ancient voices singing this amazing chant, and I'm running to a tree, touching the tree, dancing back, three days without food or water and the sun and it's hot and uh, going through stuff. Two days later, in London, going into Blackfriars to visit Niall Fitzgerald from Unilever, who was then the co-chairman of Unilever, and discuss the leadership development of their people. And I never found actually a dissonance between those two things because the one was like throwing a bucket into a well and hauling it up and trying to find the deepest reservoir of, of passion and of the things, as I said, that I really mattered to me that I could. And then the work in Blackfriars, the work with Unilever, the work with all the other organizations in which I, I uh, offered 
this leadership development myself and my company was the way of trying to bring that to a context that was relevant now. So now it's exactly the same because my days are spent sometimes mending gates, driving tractors, uh, working with a little group of primary school children, teaching them how to make dens in the woods. And the next day, like tomorrow, I'm with the top team of Barclay Card and we're visiting homeless shelters. We're going into a youth uh, gang conflict uh, place where they're helping gangs meet each other and resolve that conflict. Why? Because we stand, I would say, at the most extraordinary time in history. There is a tsunami of change just, just racing and we can already feel the foam of that breaking wave, I think. And looking at you guys, many of you are going to live the majority of your whole of your life in that space as that, as that tsunami of change breaks around you in every possible way we can imagine. And I suspect in many countless ways which you cannot imagine. And there are many of the kids in our schools and maybe who knows in our universities when they really look at the situation they are tempted towards a position of wondering you know, has the battle been fought and lost? Some certainly feel that. There are others who, who, who just have heads in the sand and have no awareness of it at all. And there are others uh, which move this, this, this um, amazing thing from, from denial to the moment that they're converted, go straight over to despair without pausing anywhere in the middle. But environmentally, socially, in every other way, there will be, I'm convinced, huge, huge change. And you and I, for the latter part of my life, have the privilege of being alive at this time. And the only question I would say, because this is how I'm, I'm beginning to shape what I would define as a leader, the only question for us at this time is whether you care enough to get involved. So at, at Embercombe we define leaders this way and we consider all of our work to be leadership development, whether it's with the five-year-olds, the single mums, with the corporate execs, whoever we think it is about leadership because that to inspire someone to committed action for a truly sustainable world that means they become a leader not with the title not with the salary maybe but in effect that is what they are so we say a leader is someone who is brave enough to act on what they know to be true and of course we understand that uh, Adolf Hitler and various other tyrants of our world no doubt uh, acted on what they believed to be true but let's for a moment consider that we are talking about a certain kind of leadership we're talking about the kind of leaders that we would actually like to have not the abusers and the tyrants and all the rest of it and the tragedy that I feel at least we're on the edge of because the game's not played out that so many truly privileged people and I would include every single person in this room though maybe we don't think of ourselves as privileged educated living in some kind of democracy that allows us to walk out in the street and pretty much go where we like and all the rest of it are largely speaking passive observers and not contributors and not participants 
Most of the corporate executives who I work with now, I have to say, what fills their heads? The only thing that always fills business people's heads mostly, and that's their shareholders' pockets, because that's why they exist, to put money in their shareholders' pockets. So a senior director of one of the big consulting firms I heard just a couple of weeks ago said this to a conference, to a conference of students at a university, he said, the only reason that our consultancy, this is a name that you know very well, but I'm not going to mention it at this moment, the only reason that our company bothers about things like climate change, environment, sustainability and all that is because it seems to concern our customers. And I was sitting there thinking, and there is no leadership in that. I also, uh, what's his name, who runs Tesco's, he spoke to a group, WWF. Now, he's not a bad man. But indeed, none of these people are what we might call actually bad people. But I do feel that they are hopelessly uh, sort of disconnected from what is happening in our world. Because he just basically said, we have no agenda about the environment or anything else related to this. We simply give our customers what they ask for. And we're very good at it. And it's not, I think, actually quite true, is it? Because we know that most marketing and advertising does a little bit more than say, what would you like? It tempts you and, and caresses you towards certain purchases and habits of buying. But this is not, I would say, leadership, and which is why I would say, and I do say in business conferences, that leadership is extraordinarily rare inside the corporate world. Followship is what dominates that world, and they follow the dollar, or the pound, or whatever else, mostly. But are they bad people? No, they're not bad people. They are mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, grandfathers and grandmothers, probably of some of us here. They are just as fine as we are, but for some reason, we have totally failed to say to those people with all your intelligence, with all your skill, with all your, your, your history, your experience, all of that that you are, the, one of the most privileged people in our society, will you stand up for a world where we could say our rivers are clean, our air is clean, our children are safe, all the things that actually really matter. This is what leadership is about. I would say. So three weeks ago I was in Nairobi, Barclays Bank, I was with them. I was with Anthony Jenkins who's the chief executive of Barclays Global Retail Banking. He, he, his team, if you could call it, it's not exactly his direct reports, but it's 120 chief executives that go all around the world in all the different countries of the world that run Barclays Retail Banking. He reports himself to Bob Diamond. Bob Diamond, I think you'll remember, some of you, particularly his bonus, who I was told that in actual fact he only gets 25% of it. And this was the reason given to me as why it was okay, but anyway. Now, Anthony Jenkins was there, and, they, and all the Barclays people had gathered in Nairobi to ask the question, does Barclays Bank have any responsibility for the world's poor? Do we consider that this has anything to do with our business agenda, with our organization? 
Second question, why are we the most hated bank in Kenya and many other parts of the world? And I would say Anthony Jenkins is a rather extraordinary man and I would name him a leader. Why? Because he has lifted his sights beyond the mountain of money that he earns. And he has said, I am convinced that it is immoral for us to ignore the effect and the potential that our organisation has to do good in this world, and we should do that. And he's a businessman. We have a responsibility and a duty to our shareholders, so we will do that to the best of our ability. But he said we do, in my opinion, owe a responsibility. Why are we the most hated bank in Kenya? Because some years ago, a few thousand miles away from Kenya, somebody looking at the figures said, my goodness, this, these are crap. Look at this, you know. Okay, where, where, where does it fall down? Ah, it's all these zillions of little bank accounts that have got less than $100 in them. Close them down. Clear them out because they're no use to anybody. And let's focus on where we make the money. And as a result tens of thousands of tiny little fragile little businesses, communities, families just went boom. Countless thousands of lives affected because somebody took a perfectly sensible business decision but disconnected from the emotional, from the, I would say, moral, from the sort of um, essential human responsibility that we owe each other, I would say and if not each other, also are unborn, the ones that follow us. So I was there with a whole bunch of other, uh, bunch of other uh, facilitators and we took groups of the Barclays people into some of the most desperate places on this planet. We went right deep into Kibera, which is the largest slum district of uh, Africa. Every day the police go in there with a pickup truck and haul out the dead bodies. When I went in there, I had 10 security staff with me. I have to say it was hopelessly over the top, but that's the way they did it. We had 200 armed security staff around the hotel because they were so terrified of some kind of kidnap attempt on Anthony Jenkins or some of his top people. But we went in there and, <clears throat> and we took people into all those kinds of places and they saw things that they'd never seen before. They saw what it's like to be dirt, 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 dirt poor. We had to step over the open channels of raw sewage that we walked through. We had to step over a body that was just lying there in the track. And the security nearly didn't allow us to go in there. When I went and did the recce with them, they said, there's no way we can let our, our people in here. It's too dangerous. And if something goes down, we can't get out because we can't turn the truck around because they're in this huge hummer kind of uh, four-wheel drive driving along a little dirt track either side of the sewage channel so ridiculous really because they couldn't they could suddenly realize they couldn't turn right or left if a mob had turned up we would have been finished and then we found a place that they were happy with and, and it was beautiful it was wonderful because the way into Kibera on this route was you went to a private golf course you went into the private golf course and then you entered a gated community and there's bougainvillea and all flowers and it's all lovely and when the bankers got out of the truck 
thinking they're coming to see the slum district. One of them said, well, not too bad. <laughs> Look at this place. Oh, it's, it's quite nice. I said, this is not, this is not Kibera. They said, oh, oh. We went through a tiny little school courtyard and we came to a big metal door on a wall. And bolt shot back, door creaks open, and the smell goes Bleh! And we stepped in. And we met some leaders. We met a guy who'd been born in Kibera and somehow survived, and somehow, miracles, found his way out and took an education, education all the way to PhD level, then went back into Kibera and started all kinds of initiatives trying to help other young kids find their way out. Brave person. Someone who acted on what he knew to be true. Phenomenal what it would took to do that. But it's not that I'm suggesting, by the way, that we should be kind of heroes in that kind of way. It's not really that glamorous. It's something much, much simpler. It's something much simpler because I don't think that we need to be poor. You don't, it's not like you make a decision that I'm going to be that kind of leader and therefore I'm going to be penniless, poor, and I'm going to have to let go of everything that perhaps is also part of my dream, which is a nice place to live and these other things. I don't think it has to be like that. It's just that you don't dump the whole lot. And when you navigate, you do, you, you do navigate in a way that you know and feel to be true and authentic to yourself. And if you don't do that, then what are you doing? What are we doing if we don't do that? So when I was being mentored by those Native American people, one of them said to me, he said, you know, in the West, in the developed world, you have so screwed up this idea of leader. They said, we have leaders. And they are accorded respect to the amount that they give away, what they give to the people. You have taken it the other way around. You take a leader, let's say, let's imagine that this man or woman leader is quite promising material. Okay? Somebody with a bit of go in them and wants to do something. You take that person. You then pay them so much money they get separated away from ordinary people and they start living only with other people like them. When they travel, you put them in a special part of the aeroplane that's separated from ordinary people. You just keep giving them privilege, privilege, privilege. And they begin to actually believe that they are different. They think they're special. They're not special. They're just ordinary people, really. Some of them... Anyway, they're ordinary people. When they go to a hotel, we make the hotel look exactly the same as all the other hotels and just the same as the hotel in the country that they came from. It's mind-blowingly boring and tedious. And then we shovel them through a life of meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings and never often do they actually even see the results of what they're working for. And imagination, this beautiful, slender, sensuous, gorgeous gift that we have as human beings is gradually eroded down and becomes, as business does all the time, turned into words like innovation. In fact, every single word that business takes, let's take quality, ultimately, is so dumbed down to me. What does it mean? But Anthony Jenkins offers me, and perhaps you, here is a person at the very zenith of their career. One step 
from the whole global running of Barclays, puts his hand up and says it is not good enough. And somebody in the audience says, what does Bob Diamond think about this? And he said, well, he hasn't told me to stop. I don't know what Bob Diamond thinks about this, but I do know that Anthony Jenkins, after that visit to Nairobi, now he's rolling it down. And that's why tomorrow and the next day I will be with Barclay Card, the top team of Barclay Card, and we will visit homeless shelters and all this stuff here in London. And they are asking the question, how can we build business products at the core of our business that will positively affect the most disadvantaged in our society? That is fantastic not fringe CSR, corporate social responsibility activities where we all go down and paint the orphanage and then go back and feel good, but core businesses, business models that will directly address and then do something for the most disadvantage in our society. So then I'd like to share with you a couple of other things and then I'm going to describe uh, one or two people that I, I'm just lost in admiration for as leaders but this time I was with a group of senior business people in South Africa and we visited Mac Maharaj now Mac Maharaj some of you might know it was the leader of the ANC forces on the ground in the bush fighting against the apartheid regime it was a serious, you know, well, you know what that war was like. I mean, it was hard and it was bloody and it was cruel. And there we are, we're meeting this guy. And I've got my team of business people with me and we said, Matt Maharaj, after all your work as, as a leader, what would you name as the quality of a leader that you would most like to see, let's say in your deputy? that you would most like to see in that person? What, what quality would you name that you think perhaps is, is somehow at the pivot and crux of what good leadership is? And he thought about it, and I, and I could see everybody in our team was busy thinking as well, what, what would they say? And you, you could now. And then he answered and he said, self-doubt. And I loved it. I loved the fact he said self-doubt. Don't we hear all the time self-confidence? He said self-doubt. He said, I am sick to hear with leaders that have no questions. I am sick to hear with leaders who think they know, that are so utterly convinced that they are right. I am sick to death of this constant emphasis about confidence, about having answers. He said, I had a deputy, he had no self-doubt, and I know he killed more of our people than maybe even the enemy. He said, I would prefer a leader who goes to at nighttime, goes to his or her bed, you know, sleepless night, questioning, questioning, questioning what they have done, the orders that they've given. Because I know that person cares about the people and cares that it be a good decision is not just there as some kind of stuffed dummy that is only interested in how good he or she looks or in their own personal advancement. He said, let us have leaders who ride that edge, remain capable of making decisions even when flooded 
with all the anxiety and all the doubts and the responsibility and weight of the decisions that they carry and make. And I feel much more comfortable myself with those kind of leaders. You turn on Radio 4 and listen to the Today program or something and how seldom do we ever hear one of these people that call themselves leaders express anything that isn't certainty about some view. We are so full of opinions. And opinions are great, but what about listening? Which was another thing those Native American people said to me. They said, all leaders give most emphasis to listening and feeling and sensing. And they are slow to come to that decision. They understand that their real power is in the person, the human being, the woman or man that they are. And the people know who they are because they witness them day to day and see the quality of the human being. So, they said, when we teach our leaders, and we have adopted this at Embercombe, we teach the twin trail. And the twin trail of leadership is the, the first part of that trail is the inner self-unfolding, healing, self-developing aspect of inquiry that goes into our own psychology, our own longings, our own love, our own motives. And it is a journey that never stops for the life, whole life of that person. That is the first essential, he said, of a powerful, true and authentic leader. And the second one is then bringing that forward in action, in action in the world. Then they said, but the trick is, it's not that you do one and then you do the other. And I know this myself to be true, because when I was training, uh, having, having graduated from Gardner to a management consultant and all the rest of it, and trying to catch up with a bit of training so I could learn the language of business people, I attended this seminar when we were told that we were going to be visited by this guy who had spent 10 years in, Himala in the Himalayas, finding out himself and gathering his power, preparing for his debut into the world that he had apparently sorted himself out and was an extraordinary powers and was a, a, a phenomenal human being and that he would come and after this 10-year meditation would deliver to us his wisdom. And he arrived and 45 minutes he ran out of the lecture room so upset was he by the fact that the audience did not respect him immediately just because he'd done 10 years in the Himalayas and told us that he was enlightened. He ran out shouting. He'd lost his cool. It was, it was quite you know, sad in a way as well. No, you cannot wait till you're sorted out. If you wait till you're sorted out, you will never do anything. Because isn't it true that most of us, perhaps all if we are really honest, but most of us, if we are looking at ourselves cold, you know, middle of the night, three, four o'clock in the morning, you wake up with a start and you open your eyes, you think about yourself, and you're in one of those weak moments and don't most of us wish that we are either a bit taller or a bit thinner here or bigger here or have more hair on our heads or were, didn't have this strange piece in our face that we're always looking at and you know, a bit puzzled by and are slightly embarrassed about don't all of us wish that, feel inadequate somehow to the, to, to the full spectrum of challenge that waves upon us if we are really honest with ourselves don't so many of us wish 
that we had, so if, if only these little things had been a bit different, then I could have really, you know, if, if I was only just that, just that extra notch more brilliant so that I could achieve the, my magnificence that I really feel destiny has called me to, and yet somehow I'm always just slightly less. You cannot wait. No, you begin your first of your twin trail paths. That is you as a human being. And it never, ever stops. And it's tough. But if you want to be a powerful leader, if, if you want to be of service in any way, I would say, and leadership is service, then you cannot seek to avoid the twin trail. You can become some big dude. And maybe earn a stack of money and have a whatever, but it will be hollow. And the other one is working that out in practice. That's then bringing what you are becoming out and offering it to the world. So I'd like to give an example of a leader who, I, who spoke recently in London. And I'm, choices I would like to also bring today, my, the ones that I speak about are women. Because it's not that I think women make better leaders, but I do know for sure that we have had countless millions of women leaders and yet their names are not spoken. So this one, her name is Hafsat Abiola from Nigeria. And if any of you have seen her speak, if any of you get the chance to see her speak, I, I say to you, go and, go and see her. Hafsat's father was the president-elect of Nigeria came from a very privileged family. He was a big guy and, and a very successful man and about to be president. He also liked to box. He was also a very human person. He liked to boast as well, particularly to his daughters. And he used to regale them with stories of his, of his uh, you know, prowess in the boxing ring. And when Hafsat tells you about this, you know, it's, it, it, it's a lovely feeling. She's not... She's not doing her father down. She, you can tell that her love for this man's humanity is just terrific. And then one day as a little girl, she attended a boxing match that her dad was fighting in and, and she witnessed him uh, flawed with the first punch in the first 30 seconds. She said it was devastating, you know. But what she then noticed was after the fight, when her dad came back home, how he then told the story. Somehow it all seemed to change a bit. And it became like how he'd managed to fend off this guy of doing these things and all the rest of it. And he'd, you know, and, and the guy had cheated and all this stuff had happened. And finally, in the final moment, a mistake was made. He tripped and took the punch and went down. But actually, he pretty much climbed into the ring and the other guy went, <laughs> and he went down. Her father suddenly just disappeared into prison. And he never came out again. He died in prison, the strong likelihood that he was murdered by the people that were seeking power in Nigeria. So Hafsat's mother took to the streets and led demonstrations, and they murdered her in the streets. Imagine this for us, for you, both your parents, who you love, murdered. And there's this woman standing there with, our, with the people listening. And was there any sense of hatred and revenge and anger? No, she was, she was like a, just a pillar of beauty. She was just talking about not what was wrong, but her, but her absolute determination 
uh, she would never ever walk away from which was the, bring, the, the fighting for deeper and deeper democracy in Nigeria and for women's empowerment and you had the feeling you had the feeling that this was a person that would stay true to that thing at the very depth and core of her being there was a, 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 a depth of authenticity a depth of of quality as a human being, as just magnificent, radiating a compassion that flowed from her. You could feel it. People were just weeping because they felt the depth of, of the, what this woman brought. Now, I heard her about 10 years ago, and I've just heard there was a conference called Women in, on Fire in London a short while ago, and she spoke again. I got exactly the same story. They're doing amazing things. You see, we have, we, are, we were taught, when I was about uh, 28, the, one of the prevailing theories of leadership is that leaders are born. And if you're not born a leader, you can't be a leader. Then it became very fashionable to trash that theory, and the new theory was, no, anybody can become a leader. It's just a list of competencies which you get trained at, and now you become a leader but I have not found that to be true. I think, we think, in work that we've done at Embercombe, leadership is a choice. And life often leads people to that choice. And usually it's through challenge. Hafsat made a choice. She was just, I don't know, just, she was not in any way adequately prepared for leader, although she did come from a privileged background, but there are many examples of people who didn't. But she made a choice. And that makes it available to every single one of you, and it makes it available to me. You just have to care enough. That is the same with Camilla Batmangeli, who runs Kids Company here in London, and is just doing extraordinary. That is the same as Wangari Matai, Nobel Peace, uh, Peace Prize winner in Kenya for the work she's done for the environment and for um, women's rights and for freedom for all people indomitable, powerful human being these I would say are leaders so I'm going to close now with one little piece I do not mind that my message to you is very simple. I'm hoping that you're finding it very simple. I'm hoping that you're really getting it right in the middle of you. You make a choice. And uh, certainly I will not, and hopefully nobody else will judge you. But you do need to be clear. Because many of you, are not, if not all, are at a point in your careers where you're making choices. And, you, and, and if you do not get clear about this, you will be blown like flotsam and jetsam around you will work for all kinds of organizations. You may accumulate and do what we call well, but you may wake up like so many countless others who we work with now, suddenly realizing that that was a life. And you're now drifting towards the other bit, but you do not feel proud of yourself. You have no sense of accomplishment. Not really. Thousands of years ago in the Native Americas, there was something called the circle of law. The circle of law was a body of thinking and a very actually sophisticated thinking 
that came through women and men, chiefs, sitting around asking themselves question, how do we govern our people? So they said, well, we understand in our culture and with our sort of beliefs that all of those, the answers to those kind of questions are written in creation, so let us stand and observe nature and see what we see and feel what we feel and be taught. And one of the first things that they noticed was the critical balance between masculine and feminine, between male and female. And they understood that for any true democracy there must be equality between the sexes and if there isn't then we have tyranny, it is not democracy. They also noticed another thing, they said we look out into the world and we notice how all beings give primacy to their children. We understand that this is in some way that one of the first laws. So when they created the councils of chiefs, women and men, they set a little fire in the middle of the council circle called the children's fire. And this little fire that burnt in the center of that circle was to remind the people no law, no action of any kind shall be taken that will harm the children. They said, imagine that, council of chiefs, council of, of, of leaders. They said, no law, no action of any kind, nothing will be sanctioned from this circle of women and men that will harm the children, and that wasn't just human children. That was the young of all beings. In other words, life, because that's what children are, both a fact and a symbol of And they asked me if I would go and speak about this to different business audiences, so I have. And at a conference a couple of years ago, I stood there and I told them about the children's fire. In terms of, by the way, the equality of the sexes, there are many different ways in which the circle of law manifests itself, but in the one that I was with and we have done at Embercombe, it means that in every seat of your council you have a woman and a man in each seat. Anyway, I was in this and I told the conference about the children's fire and I said, can you imagine? Can you imagine the effect, the impact on all institutions of power if the chiefs of those organizations ignited the children's fire in the middle of their decision making and made the promise to themselves that no law, no action, no nothing, no product Nothing of any kind would be allowed that would harm the children. Now, isn't it amazing that in our civilized and sophisticated society, we find this perhaps even almost childish, naive, silly. We are so deeply cynical. That's what they said to me, and I think it's true. They said there is no, there is no law beyond this. They said this is the core. Why is it not the core here? Go and speak to them. If you find it embarrassing Matt, we don't give a shit. Go and tell them. So I said this conference, can you imagine? Can you imagine our society if we kindled the children's fire in the middle of all institutions of power? Can you imagine? And there was a long silence. A really long silence. I just stood there. And then I said, and I have a question for you. 
What kind of society is it that would not place the children's fire at the very center of all institutions of power? What kind of society is it that would not place the children's fire at the very center of all institutions of power? And in my mind, I'm thinking it's an insane society that would not do that. And there was a long silence, painfully long silence. And the guy who was chairing the conference sat next to me was the ex-sustainability director for a large oil company that you know very well and he was sat there now I need to describe this guy okay he, he is a really lovely person if you'd had him as your uncle or grandfather you would have been very happy he's a very sweet man very humorous kind compassionate man but he's a conformist deep from the top to the bottom and he couldn't bear this silence. I imagine he thought his conference was going off the rails. So suddenly, he bounced out of his chair. You could see him, he was fidgeting at first, fidgeting more and more, and then suddenly he just erupted out of the chair, and he said, oh, thank you very much, Mac. That's very interesting, but right now, we have important things to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, slight sag in me, but I thought, well, you know, that's how it goes. So I moved to sit down. And at that moment, at the back of the hall, a voice rang out. Why don't you sit down? It's dark. It's not like this. It's really dark. Bright lights on the speakers. Very dark. And we're both sort of peering into the darkness. Why don't you sit down? This room is full of grief. And we have no answers. Why don't you sit down and let that silence continue? It's amazing. And uh, this poor guy, you know, he, was, he, was, he wasn't expecting this. He said, well, he said, if everybody feels the same. Silence. And the last I remember, he was just mumbling to himself as he backed and sat back down again. Can you imagine a society if we were to rekindle the children's fire and to, and to the day that we drop, we fight to bring that into whatever institution, sphere of influence that we walk in? What kind of society is it that would not place the children's fire at the very center of all institutions of power and I finished with when the day comes and the hole has been dug and my feet are curled over the edge and I'm about to flop into my grave I want to be able to look down the trail of my life and feel proud it's a gift I give myself. I do not want to look down the trail of my life and feel bored. I do not want to look down it and say to myself, my goodness, I betrayed myself. I was a coward. I want to know that I have acted on what I know to be true. That is, I, I, that is it for me. I will do that. 
but I think it's something you see that each of us can give ourselves we truly can give ourselves that now does it mean a recipe for a comfortable life? no it really isn't a comfortable life but is it fun? yes are there adventures? yes can you still fall in love with beautiful men and beautiful women? yes can you have everything that life has to give and loads of it? yes of course you can you can dance till you're so old that you could just fall over when you try and put your next leg forward but you have a spear in your hand you have some power and it's magnificent so these questions we in many old indigenous societies when a young person got into their teens they would go off on their vision quest we, and, the, and the elders would say to them find your vision find your way find your path come back and tell us let creation speak to you and don't, we don't get hung up by words like creation it's not, not, not a religious thing particularly it's just about going into life and asking those questions but what do we do now? I'll tell you what we do you've had your head cradled in someone's arm while they stuff a vision down your throat and they tell you what success is they tell you what your vision is it is already defined for you my friends and it has mostly to do with having a lot it's not really a vision no a vision is something truly beautiful slender vulnerable it is love itself it's you placing yourself and understanding that it is a privilege to be alive and that you have gifts that you have needs of course and you have loves and wants but you also have duties and part of those duties is to the communities in which you live is to family, is to friends but actually to countless people you've never met before ever in your life if you want a beautiful life I would say walk the twin trail and name yourself leader or in fact don't bother naming yourself leader but you will be because you will affect others and it will be like a stone thrown into the pond and the waves will ripple out and you will affect others simply by being that person now I have loads more that I could say and would probably love to say but I think that's enough so thank you very much for listening so attentively Hello. Hi. Um, just curious to know, at what point in your life did you decide to take the ten, uh, twin trial? What what occurrence, what situation happened in your life where you decided that you no longer wanted to be forced off a spoon-fed a vision, but you wanted to hmm. regurgitate your own vision to the world? Well, I'm a, a very slow learner, so I had to have multiple exp experiences, really that tapped me in the same direction I can't believe that it took so many 
But when I look back on it, I, I see somehow some kind of logic in it. But one, one of the first things was, uh, I grew up uh, very clear about what I loved. I was very fortunate, many, uh, many of us are not, but I was very fortunate to have parents. They would, whatever garden we had, they would, they would fence off about a third of it and they'd say, that's yours, you can do anything. And we did. We absolutely did anything. The smell of earth, the smell of air, the smell of plants, I grew up just loving it through the very core of my being. These things are precious to me. Now, then around about 15 or 16, I looked out on the world as it existed at that time, so I was, I don't know, it was, um, I was born in 49, so somewhere in the middle 60s or something. And although maybe sometimes reference to the 60s, early 60s sounds great, in, in, in most of society it was mind-blowingly dull. You know, it was all about just get a good job, buy a house, you know, find a nice person to marry, get your pension plan, you know, and, and then just sort of go through it till you drop off the edge of the cliff. At least that's what it sounded like to me. So I was so, I couldn't bear it. I felt I, I have a lot of energy in me. And I'm looking at that life and I think, I can't do that. So I went, I then, I then spoiled, um, sort of ruined everyone's expectations, went hopelessly off the rails for about 10 years, went renegade and ended up in a room with guns and a whole wild thing going down. And I nearly uh, got in a lot of trouble. I nearly uh, maybe got hurt. And when I walked away from that experience, I thought, I asked myself, why am I doing this? And I thought, I'm doing it as a substitute life. Because I find what I was offered, the vision, so boring, so mind-numbingly less than I want in a life. I'm creating these dysfunctional adventures to sort of give me what I feel I need. So when I went back, I left London, I went up to North Wales, I thought, I've got to do some deep thinking, and that's when I went and trained as a gardener. And as I trained for a gardener, I spent a lot of time just asking myself, okay, so you want an adventure, you want a real life, does it have to be one where you're constantly being chased by the police or, you know, somebody else? Could it not be something where you put all this energy into something worthwhile? It still felt hopeless, you understand, because all the things that I thought were worthwhile, nobody was very interested in. I'm very fortunate that the world seems to, seems to have arrived in a similar place to I am at the moment and sustainability and all these things is, is there. But at the time when I made that decision, it wasn't really like that. I was then in a car accident and the other person was killed and I found out in the inquest that they had driven de deliberately, directly at me. It was, a, it was a woman who'd had an argument with a lover in a pub and left saying she was going to kill herself and ran the first car that she saw and I was the first car. And when I, I, when I came, regained consciousness and climbed out through the windscreen and blood everywhere and screaming and squealing and dreadful sounds and I looked through the, wind, the glass where the glass had been of the other car and I saw this woman in rictus of pain and I stumbled across to try and get help from some houses. This is called Millionaire's Row. It's the road between Menai Bridge and Beaumaris on the Isle of Anglesey. It's called Millionaire's Row. 
very wealthy people live there. I found, I just got lost, I lose consciousness, I get up, I walk again. Eventually I found the front door, I hammered on the door. Help, help, please, please help. There's somebody dead or dying, there's been a terrible car accident, please call for the police and the ambulance. The windows opened, two faces looked out, and they said, go away. We don't know who you are. I said, I understand, it's okay, I don't want to come in the house. Just please ring for the ambulance, ring for the, for the police. There's been a terrible... Go away. We don't know who you are. I was crying. I, was just, I kept falling down. I got up again. I said, please, I beg you, just... And they closed the window. Amazing. You know, I think of this monk because we, we get moments and they had a moment and they defined themselves in that moment. And perhaps they did better on another occasion. I went back, I was so filled with anger, I wanted to find them. I was going to just, I was going to spend a day telling them what I felt in the most ferocious and manner I could possibly imagine. I couldn't find the house. I was so disorientated. And, and, and as I did it, I kept thinking, well, why are you doing this anyway? All these things and many more helped me. But the thing I come to feel, some of you know the film The Age of Stupid. Do any of you know that film? Okay, it's a film that's doing the rounds now, which basically very informed by, by um, some sound scientific uh, data, but basically looking at how the world might be in another 50, 60 years, and it's a pretty scary film. But I personally feel that scary stories about the future and constant emphasis on, on, on negative things that are going to happen does not motivate people. I think we need to do the opposite. We need to paint pictures, beautiful pictures, of the kind of world that we would love, of the society that we would love, of the freedoms and democracy that we would love, of, the, of those things. When, isn't it Antoine de Saint-Zupéry say, if you want people to build ships, do not get something like this. Do not gather materials, stack wood and give orders for, for how to build a boat, but build instead inside your people a longing for the great and endless sea. I think it's a leadership thing. Guide people towards some kind of sense that everything that is beautiful and longing in their heart could find expression in their life and that we could do it together because that's the other thing, it's the community. So, it was a catalogue of bad mistakes and, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned how um, businesses in general tend to be motivated primarily by, you know, money still and so forth. Yeah. In your work with them, have you seen any change and if so has it been fleeting or have you seen any lasting besides the examples you mentioned? Well there's no doubt about it that I mean business business is doing some incredible things at the moment uh, around sustainability and uh, you know, carbon footprint I mean you know what was Unilever's thing that they're gonna double in size and halve their carbon footprint or something like that uh, Walmart doing amazing things down their whole supply chain it's extraordinary what businesses are doing now. But the trouble is, it, 
it is a drop in the ocean and the thing that actually I wanted to ask or to, to offer to you I know in my heart of hearts that no matter how skillfully that I might work in changing the hearts of, of leaders because that is, that is a, really my work and bring them to a point where they decide to make different choices we have to change the system and I'm not sure how you do that but some of you perhaps might know but if it ends up like the recent Tesco's um, um, thing at Stokescroft in Bristol where we're dropping flagstones on policemen and hurting people and we're filling the whole place with rage and hate I am convinced we will just end up with the same thing again I don't feel, you know but insistence, demanding moving towards, refusing to have, accept anything that is not the world of our longing absolutely, I'm with that so I think business is doing some amazing things I notice that every time I work with business leaders I am always reminded that they are just like all of us of course they are they're just dads and mums and all the rest of it they love their kids and they're doing the best they know how they're decent people just the same as everybody is based mostly decent people but they are set inside a system that most of them do not question at any, at any sort of um, degree and the trouble is, those of us that do question it often then go and join them and then we stop questioning and we just feed it. How do you change the system? If we do not change this system, then we will continue to consume our world's resources at the rate of two and a half worlds or whatever it is that we're doing. We will plunder and plunder and plunder to feed our insatiable greed and that will be that. So there's some radical thinking needed by but it's not just by very clever people I would just lastly just say on this each of us I, is certainly Native American um, knowing I would say each individual born has a genius for something they would put it as strongly as that as a genius for something this is why it's so important on that first of the twin trail that you go on that journey of discovering your true gift and then you deploy it with all the power and energy and muscle that you have all the you know then you deploy it so we're all different but there are people and some of them may be in the LSE who can fight the fight that is about changing that system well whoever you are if you're out there I just hope that you bring your brilliance to that and uh and that all of us bring our brilliance to, to the, the sphere of our influence that we have the gifts to do and it's not by the way the gifts that you have now you may have a latent gift now speaking you know it's, it's about six years ago I couldn't speak public speak I got panic attacks now I'm fairly fluent because I've connected what I love and I the only thing I realize I never accept speaking engagements on things that I don't know anything about or that even if I think I might be able to wing it and I only speak about the things that really deeply matter to me that way I stay fluent and I stay powerful to a degree to the limits that I have 
And I think it's really important. And there was a long silence. <laughs> now, business is great. We've just got to get those people to be brave and different. So you've got a question over here. What do you think of the idea of maybe, uh, you know, your question about uh, being thinking radical? Uh, and what we're having at the moment is a kind of destruction and selfishness with land. Land is a, an interesting thing. It's, it's what we grow our food on that actually makes us stay yep. on the planet. What a, a crazy idea. But it's what if we don't actually have ownership of land? We have only uh, stewardship. Mm. I think that would be a, a rather idea. interesting input in our minds about treating land as something that's actually quite sacred. Yeah, ways. you see, it's a myth anyway. You, you cannot own land. You just borrow it for a while, then you die. You know, that's the fact. You, know? you just inhabit it for a bit, and you walk around with the hubris and the fant fantasy that you own it. You crap, you own it. The rabbits and the deer and everything own it as much as you do. You know, it's just land. Yeah, so I, I am absolutely thinking how you do that. But you see, but th that's why I say you have to be you have to be quite brave, really. You've got you've got to get unattached about it. Because when I was offered that check, the first check, he said, "You can do whatever you like with this money. It's yours, Mac. You can go and just bung it on 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 the gaming tables in Vegas if you want. You can do anything you like with it, and no strings. It's just thank you." A wonderful man, businessman. But if you're serious about this project you would like to get going, then I'll write you this another check. It's twice the amount, but now none of the money's yours. So imagine you're being offered this, you know. Mm. Like anybody else, I would really have fancied that first check. I really would. I could do a lot with that. But I stood there, it was, there was no debate, of course there was no debate, because I, I knew. So, from a place where I could have bought such a place, I'm now an employee of the charity and the board of trustees can fire me. So I'm very careful how I influence the trustees that get on the board, of course. I consider it an act of leadership. but. Um, then, then came up, okay, if we're going to stay at, at, at my, at, not, it's not my place, our place, Embercombe, if we're going to say our big question that we ask ourselves at Embercombe is how do we walk on the earth as a species, really, as a, as a society? So one of the next things that came up was money. Now, if I go and do a good gig with the corporates, let's say, I maybe, maybe I can earn £4,000 a day or something like that. Yeah? That's nice money, isn't it? Now, over here is uh, Stu. Stu can earn £150 a day with his skills. With his skills, he grows food or he builds buildings. He does really important things. But we consider this person to be immeasurably more valuable somehow than that person. Or we take a teacher. We take our teacher, we pay them this little bit the responsibility of educating our children and this toad over here who does nothing useful but you know pump chemicals into the atmosphere sort of thing we pay this person zillions doesn't make any sense does it really it's it's a 
insane society. So we had the conversation in Emkin, what do we think about this? And in that conversation we decided that we felt that providing we got people that were truly committed, dedicated, and you know, it worked, we didn't want to pay them different, we want to pay them all the same. So that's what we do. Any of us on a salary, we get the same, or pro rata There is no difference. Now we never talk about money anymore. Now I understand this is not very attractive to too many people, particularly if, you, if you're hoping one day to own your own house or this sort of thing, which are normal hopes. But I couldn't see, because I'm thinking about the longevity of Embercoon. And how am I going to sit next to my colleagues talking about all the sort of things that I've been talking about now if I'm earning my 400, 500,000 pounds a year and this person is earning their 15,000 pounds a year and I'm saying to them we are equal I'd rather have the 20 grand and see him get the 20 grand or her get the 20 grand and if we make a surplus then we'll divide it equally as well but there are expectations, there are responsibilities, there are duties with that. But also, what do we, let's, instead of looking at how little we got, what do we got? I live in the most extraordinary place. You will, you, if you go on the website, you'll see it's one of the most beautiful places in Britain. I have a lake, a beautiful lake called Tree Mirror, I can go swimming in every day. I've seen otters in that lake. You know, we, 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 we I, 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 um, Embercoon has a ship in St. Catherine's Dock. It's an ocean, a sea-going Dutch sailing barge built in 1890. We can go off sailing and have adventures because I just saw it one day in a magazine, rang some business people who have money and said, I think it would be really great if we had a ship so we could go and have adventures at sea. And they said, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so we bought it. So now I can go sailing. So I can go sailing, I can go this. I can lead a pretty good life. I live an amazing life. I eat all organic food and it's all grown. And, you know, it's talk about fresh, it's straight in. And people come, really interesting people, thinkers, philosophers, spiritual people, all kinds of people tip up. Amazing life. But so do many others who don't own the 50 acres because it's open to anybody. The Friends Weekends cost you a tenner. If you want to come down for the weekend, you can stay in a yurt, you join in the work, it costs you a tenner. If you want to do our main public program called The Journey, it costs 490 quid, and all those people that have ever rung and said, I can't afford that, nobody has been refused. Or you'll see Catalyst, those of you somewhere between 18 and 25, it's the same program but geared for people that sort of age. Anyway, it's <laughs> land and owning it. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Like the way the Americans call it, reality. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But, but, but just underneath that, we should just mention, of course, these are real. Why people do need to feel that they belong. And they do need, you can't just say to everyone, be poor and own nothing. So what do you replace it with, you see? But, uh, you know, if you're interested, come down to Embercombe and, and see... It's, it's not that Embercombe's not right, we're just some hokey little thing try, trying out some ideas really. But people feel they belong and they feel wealthy, they feel rich, they feel like they're so energized, they love their lives, you know. 
and many of them are volunteers. We have a constant source of volunteers just pouring through, just women and men who are just coming to stop for a while and then they go and do stuff. Yeah? Yeah, I'm just going to take this question and then we'll come to you in a moment. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much uh, for your time today. Uh, quick question. My understanding is that mainly you focus on the corporate culture and try to change uh, the leadership styles. Uh, what, uh, what is your intention or what uh, are you trying to do around changing the social culture? Because uh, I believe this is a, a fundamental uh, aspect of improving our society. Yeah, me too. Um, well, I talk a lot about the corporate thing because that's my... I've been given that task at Embercombe. Unusual for many ventures of our kind, I had the history I had. So, uh, obviously the corporate work is important for two reasons. It's important because of the money that it brings in and it's important because we're trying to change that group. But a lot of the work is, uh, it's, far, it's far broader than that. It is to, to society sort of thing. So it, it, um, but I'm not, and I also don't want to pretend that whatever Embercombe is offering, it's not a full solution. It's just what we are gifted to do. So we work with, uh, we're doing sustainable parenting, for instance. We're really looking at what does it mean to be a parent? How do you parent? You know, there's so much ignorance in this. What really actually works? What might be an education for life? Uh, an education that would educate you for life, not for to be an investment banker sort of thing. What? Um, so we do that. We work an awful lot on, on our own governance issues and how Embercombe works and that whole democracy. So we've, we've created that council that I was speaking of. We've created it at Embercombe. We call it the Embercombe Council. And it is like a stakeholder. It's like our second chamber because we have the trustees. We have the core team. That's the management team. And then we have the Embercombe Council. The Embercombe Council stand to guard, really, the vision and the mission of Embercombe. And because the council is made up of all the stakeholders of our entire enterprise, including the teenagers, including um, uh, the elders, that's those of us who are 60 plus, including um, Ashton Village representatives, the representatives in the village, including the mothers with young children younger than this. If our council observed that the core team at Embercombe was taking the place down an inappropriate path and the council could vote to withdraw support, Embercombe would just go Boof, because they are. They are our lifeblood. I really like that. So we do all those things now um, and just to give you a quick example of, of a little bit that I'm involved with, we work with two Budgeon superstores, uh, super, two Budgeon stores, you know they're quite small, in Crouch End trying to help them build their teams because he's competing with Waitrose and Tesco's and everything. So then I got the names of the people coming on the program and I realised that they were all people with Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan, Eastern European backgrounds. Not one of them uh, had been in the UK, I don't think had been even born in the UK. And they came down to Embercombe, which is, a, you know, Embercombe set in that part of Devon. It's fairly white middle class sort of area. And it was incredible to have those people down there. But I, what I really realised was the, the, the possibility inherent in them coming down was their families. 
so I made a big pitch to them I said bring your families bring your friends come and have a bit of this you know it's yours and uh, they did last friends weekend it was fantastic suddenly Embercombe started looking a bit more real and a bit more like London in a way and then the richness the stories all the stuff everything else that's happened and and questions now are going how can we take how can we work in all kinds of places in our urban and uh, suburban areas to try to bring the spirit that's alive in this place out into places like that so that's been a conversation with Jan Blake who's a master storyteller woman who's uh, involved with the National Theatre she came down to Embercombe she's taking it into some of the Jamaican communities and we're hoping we're going to get a, 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 a little group of Jamaican uh, elder women who are all really interested to come and see the herbs and all the stuff that we were growing that we're growing that they know about and left behind School, yeah, yeah, and lots of well, I say lots of schools, yes, primary schools, secondary schools, but we also don't. It's not if we're looking at our mission to inspire committed action for a truly sustainable world, and we think of the timescales that we need change in. We are also very interested in the most privileged of our society, so we're trying to get some real, you know, some of those those who are who are just by dint of their education and their background go straight into leadership really trying hard to find to, to get them as well as and best of all is when they're all mixed up I love having a business group down with a grassroots environmental activists together with you know the, these sort of uh, um, you know it's just fantastic because they all have so much prejudice about each other we're just the, going to take a if that's okay a final question from the gentleman who started the question oh Oh, that, thank you. Uh, can I ask you to... Ah, all right. Thank you. Uh, a bit loud. <laughs> uh, can I ask you to become a painter for so several seconds? To? To become a painter. Painter? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, my question is um, relates to, towards human resources. Yeah. Um, what types of personalities will you pick up to make a strong, engaging, friendly, and socially healthy team? If you have no possibility to pick up not more than four or five mm, individuals, okay, um, I need I need to. Don't, I'm not sure I got quite what, all of it. What can, can of I repeat? Can I repeat? Yeah. Uh, what types of personalities will you pick up to make a strong, engaging, friendly, and socially healthy team? Okay. Yeah. Uh, when they work under yeah. the, under the project in custom service. Uh, different uh, applications. <laughs> Most of all, you know that you, some of you know Belbin team roles. They talk about the shaper. Shaper is a sort of very go-getter type. Plant is another role. These are the ideas people. Completer finishes are completer finishes, and so on. Uh, you know, when I recruit, uh, I break all the rules because I don't think they work anyway. We once gathered a room full of 50 people because we were looking for new freelance associates to work with my business. I walked into the room, I scanned the room, I looked through it, I said, no. Nope. <laughs> my colleague was outraged. 
God, I said, how could you possibly do that? Please don't speak, don't say that. I said, I said but I know. It wasn't, it was about 30, I suppose. I said, I know, they're not here. And they said, well, that's, you cannot do that. So I said, well, okay, we'll have to do the right thing. So we went through all the things, it took thousands of hours, all the rest of it, and they weren't there. So I'm not sure that we somehow, I want like a very go-getting, thrusting person. I want, uh, I want a, a, a detailed person and these things. I prefer something much less scientific that works for me. But uh, I know it sounds a bit like magic hocus-pocus, but when I'm down in Embercombe, I just walked around and I said, I need, there's, there's people out there trying to find me. They, I'm sending a voice out, I'm calling to them, come, come. And I got the most amazing people turn up. I got Joey. Joey has tattoos from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, even on his gums, <laughs> that he inflicted with a nail in prison. Joey's had the most miserable life when he was little. Joey arrives. He, somebody once said of Joey, Joey looks, you know, do, do you know? Yeah. <laughs> Joey looks like, the, like what Julius Caesar saw on the Do White Cliffs of Dover when he pulled up in his ships. You know, he's the kind of guy you definitely cross to the other side of the street if you saw him one dark night. <laughs> Joey arrives. He said, Matt, he's a man of few words. I've looked around, I like it. I want to give you what I can. I can give you all my weekends and all my annual leave. I'll just come and help. And that's what he did for seven years. I have great trust in, 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 a, in people arrive. People arrive, but the one thing I know is when they arrive with their magic, they always bring their problems as well, just like I do. So we, we have a, a, like a psychotherapist, coach person, He's also part of the thing. He works with each person. You have to make a commitment to Membercombe that you will go deep on that first trail. So what would I do? If I was going to start something now, I would stand here now. I would, I would spell out this, the, the vision of the thing and I'd say, who wants to step forward? And I'd see what happens. And then out of that group, I'd say, so guys, you've stepped forward. You're the ones. You say you are the ones to do this adventure. Let's go and do something then. And then when we went and did something, we would find that there would be a 25-30% dropout because the idea is different from the doing. And then I'd take that smaller group and I'd say, okay, that's looking really good. Now let's get stuck into the real business. It's going to be unremittingly hard. It's going to be really tough. It's going to be very beautiful. We'll party hard. We'll play hard. Let's see who's still here in another six months. And we get another 30%. Which are not bad people, by the way. It's just, it's just not their gig. I don't know. You know. Off they go. Now I've got hardcore warriors and warrioresses. They want to do something. And then we, then we do something. And that's how it's worked at Embercon. So it's the best way I can probably answer that question. <laughs> Thank you. Good. So if we could just show our appreciation to Mac. And sorry. Sorry, I should have said that afterwards. Um, I just want to make sure you know the Embercombe website. www.embercombe.co.uk And uh, Matt won't do this, so I also want to let you know that Matt's uh, written a book um, which you can find via that website. And so if you want to be reminded of this talk and to urge you, you know, do visit Embercombe. It will, if you enjoyed this, Embercombe 
you know, just will really speak and work for you wherever you are, whatever you're doing in your life. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you.